Tundra Talk is brought to you by Frontier Outfitters and Century Hardware, your locally owned source for hunting, fishing, and shooting gear in interior Alaska. They sell proven gear that will tackle whatever Alaskan tasks you need it to, and Frontier always stays current with gear for the season. Whether you're baiting bears in the spring, fishing, camping, or dip netting in the summer, you're looking for game bags and moose camp gear in the fall, uh, if you need to stock up on trapping lures or just get everything you need to go ice fishing, they've got you covered. They always carry a wide variety of Alaskan-proven clothing and boots, camping gear, meat processing supplies, guns, ammo, reloading and shooting supplies, as well as camping gear and backpacking food. Downstairs in Century Hardware, you'll find a full hardware store naturally, and uh, you'll also find your snow machine, ATV, and marine accessories down there. They go out of their way to stock plenty, plenty of quality, useful equipment. And whether you're gearing up for a hunting or fishing trip, working on a never-ending home improvement project, or anything in between, it's usually a one-stop shop. Frontier Outfitters is located on 3rd and Old Steese in Fairbanks, and they have a second location in North Pole, so make sure you stop in next time you need to gear up. This episode of Tundra Talk is also brought to you by Hedgecock Group Realtor Rick Lindsay, a guy that can take care of just about any of your real estate needs in the Fairbanks area. Now, the Hedgecock Group has been in Fairbanks North Pole real estate market since the early 80s, and their service is tailored to meet the diverse needs of home buyers in interior Alaska. Now, Rick has lived in Fairbanks for a long time and understands a lot of the less obvious ins and outs of buying and selling property around here. You know, things like water holding tanks and permafrost and all that jazz. Fairbanks is a really unique place to live, and having a realtor that knows what to look for in a quality place can make all the difference. Rick's a Marine Corps veteran and will work hard to get you exactly what you need. And if you're looking to buy or sell real estate in the Fairbanks or North Pole area, reach out to Rick at 907-378-6780. And go check out his Instagram at R-L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-113 at rlindsey113. He's really a passionate outdoorsman. He's just like us. He's one of us. And he loves to share his adventures on there. And he's got a pretty a pretty nice cranker of a ram that I'm jealous of. So go check him out. I know there's lots of you out there that dream of moving to Alaska, but it's a big step and can be kind of intimidating. Landing a solid job before you move can make things run a lot smoother, but you might not be sure of the job market or even really where to look. Now, if you're an experienced ASC certified or GM factory trained technician, I've got good news for you. Chevrolet GMC of Fairbanks is looking to hire qualified service department techs, and they've got enough work to keep you pretty much as busy as you want to be. Fairbanks Chevy has a very busy shop, but they allow for flexible scheduling. They offer top market pay rates with paid overtime, a great benefits package with 401k retirement plan with contribution matching. And, you know, for a service tech, you can really make a good solid living. They, they can offer relocation assistance to help get you up here, paid training to get you spun up, and they have a well-lit and well-maintained facility, and these are all things that I mean, help contribute to a great work atmosphere. On top of all that, they make it a priority to allow you to take your vacation time during hunting season, something that is really tough in the, in the service and construction industries here in Fairbanks and can sometimes be a deal breaker for folks like us. Good help and hard workers are always welcome in Fairbanks, and if this is the opportunity you've been waiting for, apply at FairbanksChevy.com or call their service manager, Rick Lindsay, directly at 907-215-6444. That's how you do it. 
All right, welcome back to Tundra Talk, everybody. I'm Tyler Freel, and uh, sitting across the computer screen from a guy I've known for quite a few years and had the privilege in the last couple of years of working very closely with, and uh, I feel like that has gone pretty well, uh, Outdoor Life's shooting editor, Mr. John Snow. How, how I would ask how you're doing, but that would be all for show because I, I fucking know, because <laughs> we've been corresponding all day as a matter of work, but... <laughs> Yeah, no. Well, yeah. You, 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 and I have, uh, you know, in our own way, we're kind of joined at the hip um, with uh, with what we do for the for the publication these days in terms of being the uh, the one two punch that constitutes the vast majority of our uh, shooting firearm and gun coverage. So, yeah, no, I have I have a feeling hardly a day goes by where we don't know how we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And that's been a great, that's been a great thing, you know, so, so in some, you know, for, if depending on the wrong, on the right or wrong people, it could be a pretty shitty thing, but, no, it, but I, I like it. It's nice when you work with good folks and people you like, no, and it's, it's been, it's been great. I've had, uh, uh, no, not, not to turn this into a love fest right off the bat, but I've had a, uh, a, a great time, uh, collaborating with you, getting to know you and, and, uh, becoming friends, man. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, heck yeah. And, uh, you know, and all, you know, all, all pat ourselves on the back. I feel like it's, well, partly the digital, tra- the transition outdoor life going to all digital, because which you can get into, you know, you were a print publication guy for decades. And, uh, it seems like partly the, the digital transition, which got allowed me to get my, to have my job and both, you know, both of us working together on a lot of our gun content. Like it's pretty, I feel like, I feel like we're, we're pretty well positioned against just about anybody, any, any of our, our, uh, you know, peer competitors in, yeah, in the competitive I, sense. I, I would agree. You know, my, my career has spanned, um, a pretty, a pretty substantial amount of time, you know, starting even back in the late eighties as a traditional journalist. And, you know, I, I was in the newspaper industry then, and, you know, I've had the interesting distinction of like every kind of time I've made a transition from one thing to another, it's been in a dying platform. And, um, you know, but at this point, you know, and I've been, I've just been through a lot. You, you kind of know, you've heard some of the stories, but when we had this announcement back in 2020 that um, we were being sold, you know, we're part of the Bonnier group at that point. And actually we were doing really, we we're doing extremely well on the print side. We were making really what I think are the best print publications in outdoor life's history, which is, you know, given the fact you're an outdoor life history buff, so am I, you know, that's saying a lot. And I was incredibly skeptical about, what this transition was going to be, particularly when they said we were going to go all digital. And, um, you know, I kind of um, metaphorically anyway, pinch myself regularly at how fortunate we've been in terms of making this transition, which, you know, a lot of people now in the industry know about, but I feel like there are, you know, people in the audience who are still kind of learning about this. And we've got this whole new group of people that we've managed to reach out and, connect with in the, in the digital realm because we don't have any boundaries at this point. Yeah. And it really is shocking to me how well in this time of uncertainty and a lot of ups and downs just in the world and everything else that we've, we've managed to kind of make this transition land on our feet and, and in some ways kind of come into our own. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for my, you know, from my perspective as a longtime freelancer, you know, it was all, which 
I, I tell people I just met, I, I got lucky and got in the door through our boss, Alex Robinson, seeing me being a smart ass on the internet, which has not changed. But, uh, but, uh, love my friend just had, just had a lucky break and, uh, and got in the door and managed to cling on long enough and do whatever shitty assignment that they, you know, that someone needed done to, uh, and finally like things worked out. I almost couldn't believe it when Alex called me and asked, would you be asked if I'd be interested in coming on full time? So, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a big learning process and I was unsure going in, going into working full time, a, how I would ever come up with enough stuff to fill my time and B, you know, what, what, what was it even going to look like? But with no, you know, basically no limitation, the sky's the limit on the assignments we, I find, and you find, I think that we have to like throttle down and be picky about the assignments we even take on just cause we, you know, they're, the possibilities are limitless basically. And you, you know, we're, we're only limited by the time we have. So, uh, getting picky is, is pretty important. Like you, you've kind of rubbed off on me and like, like the idea of like, I don't have time to shoot shitty guns. Like I don't have time. I don't have time to deal with accurate, with rifles that just won't shoot. <laughs> like maybe I, like maybe I used to, but, uh, you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of a rabbit trail of its own. Before we get too far, I like one, uh, little known fact about Tundra Talk is, is you, Jon Snow, came up with the name. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah, <laughs> I do. I'm, 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 yeah. I, I have my moments of brilliance. Well, it's more, it's more than a few moments. And I, I remember at, like asking you to help me brainstorm names and that was one of them. But, uh, I will point out that John is not a guy you get that a slow breather like me <laughs> should engage in a battle of wits or quick, uh, quick insults because you like I've sometimes you just when I spend time around you in public especially I'm just I'm just left in awe a lot of times by by the the snappiness of your wit it's pretty it's pretty it's a it's a thing to behold so um, I I am I am lucky what I'm in awe is I've managed to actually keep a job down with with my mouth um, (laughs) intact somehow (laughs) thread the needle and uh, and not uh, and not doom myself with uh, saying everything everything that I think. But uh, no, I, I appreciate the I appreciate the kind words. And really, you know, you're kind of you know this gets into some of the deeper stuff pretty quick. You know, you're hinting at uh, some of the things I think have accounted for our um, kind of collective success in this new, very new chapter in the evolution outdoor life. You know, in terms of our personalities, the fact that we are um, you know, very passionate subject matter experts, which has been part of Outdoor Life's DNA for a long time, but didn't necessarily translate to um, what wasn't everything you needed in the print realm, you know, but we always emphasized it because we always felt it was important. And now in the digital realm, those qualities that we've kind of uh, nurtured in our staff historically have uh, really become tremendous assets for us, including our mouths, and the, the fact yeah. that we're mouthy on the internet and and everything else. I mean, it's been kind of neat to see us almost taking on like that final form. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you, 
if you spend much time reading, and I think people like misread, whether it's selective memory or, or willful misremembering, if you read a lot of Jack O'Connor's stuff, like, I don't think the guy suffered idiots. <laughs> oh, no, Jack was not. Jack was not a warm and fuzzy guy. He would have, he would have, um, uh, dove into the internet social media wars with both fists going and just left a swath of destruction in his path. And in fact, that's kind of a tradition with some of our shooting editors, really, because Jim Carmichael, too, incredible um, quick wit and uh, had for a long time a running column called Just Jim, where he basically kind of let loose at various um, targets and and usually um, center punched him to to deadly effect. Hey, one thing I do want to mention though is what which episode of Tundra Talk is this? Roughly, uh, I this th- uh, let me look real quick. It's like one forty in the one forties. So one hundred. So 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 not as not as many not as many as it should be. I will say yeah. I will say that. But <laughs> and yet on the other hand, I came up with the name, and yet how many times have they been on the podcast? Yeah, well, you know, you and everybody else, I guess. <laughs> no, so this is my first time. I am, I am, and I am excited to be on the Tundra Talk podcast because you have really turned this into something, man. It is, it has been a cool um, thing to watch you grow and, and make. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. I don't talk well. I'm like the worst podcast host. I don't talk well. I'm too busy to do episodes all the time. But that being said, we uh, it's been you know it's been a lot of fun to do. Uh, great, I mean, great learning experiences, and we've had you know have a lot of laughs. Try not to take take things too seriously or overthink things too much, but uh, and provide some useful information. So it's uh, it's been really good. Now, um, before. I want to step back and maybe you can tell me, like, tell the, tell people a little bit more about like, what, what, like, what is the shooting editor position and what that kind of means? You know, it's, it's so much, so many terms get and positions get thrown around, but shooting editor of outdoor life is like, I mean, it's kind of a big deal. What you're only like the third or fourth one ever, including, you know, Carmichael, Jack O'Connor and Townsend Whalen. That's right. Um, That's right. You know, so we've been, you know, real quick, you know, as you know, Outdoor Life was founded in 1898. And, um, you know, it took a couple years for the, the magazine to kind of start to get its feet under it, which isn't surprising. But right from the get-go, like the very first mission statement was that, from the editor who founded it, was that we were going to be kind of unapologetic about our advocacy for and our passion for the outdoors. We weren't going to um, kind of suffer fools gladly. We weren't going to pull punches. And not long after the founding in the early 1900s, you know, we got our first um, shooting editor, who was Townsend Wayland. And um, and since then, we have there's only been five of us total. So after Townsend Wayland, um, briefly Charles Askin Sr. was in charge, and then Jack O'Connor came on the scene. Um, and Jack O'Connor started in the um, in the 40s at the position and went all the way to the early 70s, and then in the early 70s, Carmichael took over and you know he was our shooting editor for decades and then in 2009 um i was lucky enough to uh be tapped as the as carmichael's successor and of course that wasn't just by accident i had when i joined outdoor life in 2001 
um, you know, I, I, I really admired Jim and, um, and I was handling a lot of our gear coverage and I kind of, you know, made him mentor me, um, and, and learned as much as I could from him, you know, during, during the years that we overlapped those, um, you know, eight years, nine years that we overlapped and, um, you know, just tried to soak up information from him like a sponge. Cause I love the topic so much. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, one of the this is kind of a, a of kind of a throwback that I into uh, what we were talking about earlier. It's guys like Carmichael and O'Connor not suffering, not suffering fools. Because that's a that's a call in, in the internet world we live in today. That's that's a, a, a reply I've seen frequently. Oh well, I bet Jack O'Connor never talked to his readers like this. I was like, I bet his readers weren't saying these. <laughs> so I bet bet you he did. But uh, it just reminded me of. Uh, of well, our boss has a story about a uh, not dead gun writer who told him if he entered when he was a young editor. <laughs> this story who told who told him if he had entered or had to go if if you enter another er- error into my copy, you're going to wish you died and went to hell or something like that, or you're going to think you died and went to hell. <laughs> exactly. No, we 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 tend to be a rather cantankerous bunch. There's, uh, there's, yeah. there's, there's no doubt about it. Well, you know, and there's a lot to be cantankerous about. Um, cause as you, as you know, and you, you, you can speak to this too, you know, there's a lot of great information, innovation and, um, and sources of, of, um, inspiration in our world. There's also a lot of misinformation and stupidity that gets repeated ad nauseum. And after a while it gets, it can it can get under your skin and annoy you that you one once again yet have to address some ridiculous notion that somebody is putting out there or who you know even worse is challenging you on you know it's the whole confidently incorrect um trend of of somebody calling you out for something when they clearly don't know what the hell they're talking about yeah well in uh <laughs> you say that it reminds me uh i so i just you know we obviously just published this uh this bb guns test that i've gotten way too excited about uh you know my garage is literally piled with freaking bb guns my my son's been having a hell of a good time but um uh so one of the like background details one of them is a replica of uh, a mac 11 a uh Ingram M11 submachine gun and uh, doing just like, yeah, like poking around. I try, you know, I try to have some sort of an education, even if it's a gun I know nothing about. It's a BB gun in this case. I'm like, all right, well, I'll look, poke around the interwebs and just, you know, get some good, useful tidbits to maybe increase my, my knowledge. or So I, I'm not talking completely out of my ass. And, uh, you know, this particular, and I've talked to you about YouTube, some of the YouTube videos that are out there that are very you know can be very entertaining and they're popular get a lot of views but uh one of them was on you know on the mac 11 which i think it was technically a mac 10 because it was nine millimeter not 380 and uh the guy like did, like didn't know anything anything about the gun you know they had a, an aftermarket you know newer made upper and different parts suppressor not you know like the original type of suppressor and it basically running through, oh, this has a bunch of upgrades because, well, it's just an old style of gun. Not saying, all right, well, it's a stamped sheet metal piece of shit gun that would wear out like crazy. You know, you, you know things like that were, 
you're not really, you know, you, you see, you see some cool, some cool B-roll footage, but you're not really learning anything about the gun because the person doesn't know anything about the gun. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, and it's one thing I appreciate about working with you is you've pushed me and kind of inspired me like through this and having more time to devote to some of these projects, um, to just go like, go like just a little bit beyond where I think I need to in like learn just a couple more things or add a couple more details in a story. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's pretty, pretty satisfying to do, but also, also kind of important in today's world, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, we're, you know, we're flooded with different vectors of information, sort of no matter what you're into, but, you know, just sticking with the gun world, you know, we've got any number of, of people out there who are, you know, either legitimate authorities or presenting themselves as authorities or kind of like clowny entertainers and stuff. And, you know, the, the fact is, is that, you know, I believe that there are and always will be a uh, a large number of people who are going to be kind of like, you know, you know, deeply concerned about the actual performance of things. They want real data. They want real information and stuff because, you know, these sports are time consuming. They're expensive and it's the kind of thing that a lot of people like to nerd out about. And one of the things I realized really quickly when I transitioned more into gun writing, but even into the outdoor stuff in general from when I was a general assignment reporter is that, you know, particularly in the gun world, is, you know, it's imperative upon us as staffers to make sure that the information is right the first time it's out there. Obviously, if something happens, we can make a correction and stuff. But, you know, you know good journalistic practice is to try to get everything 100% right the first time. And the fact is, is that we have members of our audience, like, let's just say, you know, we wrote something about um, building your own muzzle loader and shooting old black powder stuff. You know, that's not an area of expertise of mine. You know, I know a bit about it. You know, you know, you know, a bit about it probably yeah you probably i think you know more than me about it but be that as it may there are going to be guys out there who know everything about it and like so the challenge for us as writers is on the one hand to write stuff where hopefully that guy is kind of as he's reading along is nodding his head at the same time we've also got to write it so that the guy who is interested in guns but knows nothing about it can follow along, find it interesting and learn something as well. So, you know, there's, you know, the, our, our job as, as gun writers, as legitimate concerned gun writers is, is pretty complicated because we have to be able to talk to and um, be in tune with the most devoted experts in the field at the same time, making sure that we're not just, you know, talking in such technical gibberish that we leave, sort of, you know, people who aren't as engaged in that particular subject behind, you know, it's, it's not an easy job. And that's why, frankly, there are so few really good gun writers out there. Yeah. And, uh, speaking of becoming a good gun writer or a gun writer, how, like, what's some of your background? Cause you, you worked for, you worked in the newspaper industry and then you actually ran, were, were like, Oh, editor in chief for a bunch of yeah. Anyway, yeah, I'll, I'll quit running my mouth. Yeah. So real quick, um, you know, I I have an interesting. You know, well, here's what's interesting about my background 
is that like when I, I grew up, I, I grew up most of um, my childhood in Southern New England in, in Connecticut. And I grew up in a kind of a typical suburban neighborhood. And I had a, actually a big pond behind my house that I fished in every day. And I just, even from when I was little, I just kind of had that desire to fish. And as soon as I got a BB gun, oh my God, stuff started dying. You know, so I just <laughs> always had that kind of that bloodlust and that interest in it, which isn't that unusual. You know, a lot of young kids have that. You know, then I got, you know, like older, went to college, um, you know, and I kind of, I didn't like, wasn't really able to fish and, you know, do things as easily during that period of time. And then after I, you know, kind of started, you know, became a young adult on my own, I sort of started reigniting that stuff. I started big game hunting more seriously and and frankly, more legally at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, because when I was a kid, I had no idea even what a license was. Right? Yeah. Like it just... You know, I didn't have any mentors or anything. Everything was just sort of self, sort of self-taught and not very well self-taught. I will be the first to admit. Um, but you know, soon after, um, you know, soon after I graduated college, you know, I started you know buying some guns and started getting into hunting and stuff. And that kind of coincided with me becoming a journalist. And my first jobs in journalism were in traditional old old school newspapers. You know, there's a series of weekly newspapers on the um, shore of Southern Connecticut uh, that I worked for. And so I covered general assignment news. I covered the police beat, the state police, um, you know, different things like that. And then I joined the uh, the um, largest daily newspaper in Connecticut, the Hartford Current, as a general assignment reporter as well. But I always kind of wanted to work for magazines. I was really stoked to do that. And um, and back in those days, like transitioning from newspaper to magazine, that was like an unbridgeable gap. Like you know, magazine people just look down their noses at newspaper people. They can't do what we do. And newspaper people look down their noses at magazine people. Oh, they can't do what we do. And so it was really quite difficult, actually, to kind of cross from one to the other. And so I ended up going to grad school to get um, my master's in journalism specifically to focus on magazine stuff. And um, ironically, right after I graduated with that shiny new master's degree in magazine publishing, um, I ended up being one of the very first new media editors at the New York Times. <laughs> so I the, <laughs> the old internet 1.0 for, for several years there, like the very first efforts, the very first websites of the New York Times back in the day. In fact, I, I, I you know, kind of a funny flex, but my email used to be john at nytimes.com. You know, just wow. before you did like first name, last name or whatever. Um, but what happened is I was living in New York at that point and I got sick of being there. Like I just missed the outdoors so much. And actually at that time I had like hooked up with some um, some guys. Actually, there were a bunch of Puerto Rican guys up in the Bronx who were fly fishermen. And I would um, take the six train up to the end of the line. I was living in sort of midtown Manhattan. Um, you know, every now and then with my, with my fly rod, go up to the end of the sixth train, they would pick me up. Uh, this guy was Jose Colon in particular. He had this old beater uh, suburban and we would drive up the Connecticut shoreline and we would fish the tide in the night all the way back into the city and then roll back in at, you know, 4.35, a.m. after fishing all night, you know, and that, that was one of the things that helped sustain me during that time. And I would do, also do deer season and things like that. But, um, but anyway, I was just aching to get back outdoors. And so I quit my job and ended up moving to Seattle with my um, with my wife. And we uh, and that's where I got in with fishing and hunting news. 
And a, a lot of the people in our world who you know and I know um, got their start there. And it was this great incubator and, and stuff. And a, and a lot of our buddies came from there and uh, worked there for a few years and then transitioned to outdoor life. Yeah, that's awesome, man. I uh, It's much more interesting than my, than my story. But, hey, we're both, you know, we're both here and uh, and I'm and I'm glad of it. <laughs> um, but I guess to, to roll, you know, I mean, roll, roll into some, some interesting stuff. Um, you know, I have written down to talk about some, uh, some favorite, some favorite cartridges and stuff like that. You know, a lot of people don't know you, you know, you basically developed in conjunction with Hornady, the six millimeter Creed more, correct? That, that's right. That's right. So what happened was there in, um, 2007 when, the 6.5 Creedmoor was announced. I was instantly super excited about it um, because it, it it kind of hit a bunch of things that I already liked in cartridge design. And just to, you know, take it one step back, you know, one thing about the shooting editors at Outdoor Life is that actually all of us have really fancied um, over the years like milder, um, you know, kind of cartridges that are inherently a little more accurate certainly a lot easier to shoot and, you know, just as terminally effective as the, as the big bruisers that a lot of other people would tout. So for example, um, you know, back in Townsend Whalen's day at the beginning, you know, Townsend Whalen was, you know, uh, he supervised the Frankfurt arsenal and um, was, you know, you know, very integral in a lot of the small arms development for the U S army as we transitioned mm-hmm. from things like the 3040 Craig to the 30 yacht six you know, the 3003 initially for him and so forth. And so, you know, this guy very spun up, you know, his favorite cartridge for hunting, like his one cartridge, if he can only shoot one of all time, the 257 Roberts, that was, that's that's what he would, that's what he would go with. And also, you know, even things like the 250 Savage, which predated the 257 Roberts, you know, a, you know, in his world, a phenomenal cartridge. Well, and the 250 Savage was also the 253,000 Savage, correct? That's that's right, and that's the same same round. They and wasn't it because it was like the first, or it was a, it was a 25 caliber cartridge that could push a bullet at 3,000 feet per second. Basically, is how it was named. Is that correct? Exactly, and and it's interesting because it was developed by Charles uh, by Newton, um, you know, who developed all those great high performance cartridges. Now, the thing is, when Savage brought it to market they really wanted it to hit that 3,000 feet per second mark because they knew they could make some hay with that. But actually, as originally designed, Charles Newton much favored it with a 100-grain bullet, which did not achieve that velocity. So what ended up happening is Savage introduced, I think it was an 87-grain bullet, if, if memory serves, which could get to that um, um, you know that magic three thousand foot per second mark, and not that there was anything wrong with the with the eighty with the eighty seven grainer, but um, you know that that you know desire on the executive's part was sort of a little bit contrary to what the original um, design of the cartridge was meant to be. So even then, you know the whole velocity is king thing, which has dominated you know, so much of our cartridge design and the, and the and the shooting public and the hunting public's notion of what constitutes quote-unquote performance, even back then it was a tension, right? Because, you know, you look at what Charles Newton designed and even what Townsend Wayland advocated for, he much preferred the 100 grainer. You know, he would shoot the 87 or 87 grainer on 
um, you know, uh, vermin and, and things like that. But for actual hunting, you know, he knew that value from a from the terminal standpoint, just the performance standpoint of a heavier for caliber, um, you know, more moderately pushed bullet. So even with him, we saw it. And then obviously Jack O'Connor in the 270, you know, the 270 compared to the uh, six, again, a much milder cartridge. And, and Jack, um, you know, famously his wife shot just about everything with a seven by 57 Mauser, you know, so there was this predisposition to smaller cartridges there. And then, well, and, and, I'll, and I'll interject that O'Connor actually like, I mean, I have several, the magazine sitting on the shelf behind me that, you know, several stories of him kind of praising the 20, like a lot of the 25s kind of do all my, you know, like, I can't remember the wording he used, but as like just excellent do all like mild kicking cartridges. And, and, you know, it was kind of before, I don't know. I can't remember the year, so I can't say for sure it was before, but it was in the early days of the 270. And he, you know, obviously came, well, and he, he has stories about the con- 270 being controversial because it's too, because it was, it was, you know, people thought it was, or argued that it wasn't enough gun. Exactly. Um, and even before O'Connor jumped on the 270, um, Townsend Whalen really liked that. He sang his praises um, tremendously. And now, in another interjection, this is, well, you know, kind of tidbit from a story you recently wrote that Townsend Whalen, who the 35 Whalen was named after, we're not even sure if he ever even hunted with it, right? Yeah, I, it's I as far as I can tell, you know, and and again, this is that journalistic due diligence. I, um, you know, I really kicked the bushes hard to um, to delve into that. And he talked about it in passing, but if he ever hunted with it, he never left a record of it. He did. It, it, it seemed based on some of his later writings that he had done a little reloading for it to talk about it, but that's. But that's interesting, you know, because that that story was about um, Townsend Whalen's role in the uh, formation of Griffin and Howe. You know, Griffin and Howe is celebrating their 100th anniversary this year. And um, in sort of recognition of that, they have launched uh, a series of really beautiful rifles chambered in 35 Whalen to honor Townsend Whalen. And but really the creation of the whaling family of cartridges, and there were several of them. There was not only the 35, but a 375 and a 400 whaling. Um, the 35 whaling was the only one that really kind of caught on in any meaningful way. And even that was a wildcat until the late 80s, until like 1988 when Remington finally made it a standard load. But um, it was it was Howe of Griffin and Howe, who very talented gunsmith, machinist. Um, who developed those cartridges based on the Ot Six, and kind of wanted to honor Townsend Wayland and asked if he could name them after him. And, and Townsend, I think, had some input on. You know, it's not like Townsend Wayland had nothing to do with it, but really the heavy lifting and all the credit to that goes to uh, goes to uh, Griffin. Um, and um, and I, and and in a sense, I almost got the feeling that that Whalen was a little reluctant or um, kind of too humble to sort of eat his chest about a cartridge that bore his own name, almost a little uncomfortable with it. And, and, and part of that goes back to Whalen's upbringing. He came from an aristocratic family in Philadelphia. So he sort of had a literally a gentlemanly upbringing. And then he was a career army officer and sort of, uh, you know, to, to sort of um, self-promote that way would be unseemly at the very least. So, Anyway, a little history on the on the Whalen and Whalen. 
Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, and as we deal with on a daily basis, it's just funny to, uh, you know, just the the. I don't know. The, I have a lot of funny, funny ways of saying it. The the alert, the allergic to the word creed more type type of, of things today. That that cartridge, you know, when you talked about being pretty excited about it when it was first released, I you know I being in uh, shooting service rifle a lot and around you know some of my like high power and service rifle mentors that were staying in touch with what was going on. Um, you know, it was really, you know, it was, they were pretty excited about it when it was released as an across the course cart cartridge, which is what it, you know, the whole, the whole entire purpose before it that's lost on most people. And it just happened to be a pretty damn good hunting cartridge too. It wasn't, it wasn't that they were trying to reinvent the six, five by 55 or, um, the way I remember it being explained as part of the, part of the goal was to equal the two sixties ballistics but be able to use, be able to load heavy high BC bullets. I think at that time it was like 140 grain A maxes at, at a length that would still fit in a short action magazine for high power shooters shooting across the course. And for people who don't know, um, it's been a while since I've done this stuff. I always shot service rifle, but there were like match high power rifle shooters that shoot it. You know, when I say across the course, you're shooting standing and sitting at 200 yards, a prone, and sitting rapid fire at 200 yards, a prone rapid fire string or two at 300 yards, and then slow fire at 600 yards, all iron sights. And uh, allowing, you know, having the 260 like cartridge fit in a short, in a short, ma- short action magazine um, helped the bolt, bolt action match rifle shooters run just that much quicker. I mean, that was one of the main benefits that I remember guys being excited about back in the day. And, uh, you know, then it kind of lulled for a few years and blew up and now no one can, can read an article that does or doesn't mention it without bringing it up. Exactly. Well, you know, so just to maybe give a little more context there. So, you know, the 260 was actually a cartridge that Carmichael helped bring to market. And of course, um, you know, because he had, he did, did a lot of wildcatting. Actually, of all the outdoor life shooting editors, by far, Carmichael was the most um, avid sort of ballistic experimenter in terms of uh, developing, you know, a, a wide variety of different wildcats. And so he did work with necking the um, 308 down to the 6.5 and, and Remington, um, you know, commercialized it and of course instantly fucked it up. Like, you know, like they did just about everything else that they touched. Um, and by, by <laughs> having the first, um, having the first uh, offerings and the wonderfully accurate core locked bullet, um, not, and, um, and, and, and basically, um, you know, turning it into a very unimpressive 308 light rather than leveraging the capabilities that it, that it would have had. And in, and in certain applications done, does and then what happened was um like you said you know actually it was a um dave emery who was the chief ballistician at hornaday at the time at dennis demille you know who's one of the most um you know decorated uh sort of positional across the course high power shooters in american history you know they i shot on the i shot on the same line as him once yeah exactly (laughs) he's a a very well-known name so he and dave were rooming together and actually um and i think it was it was at camp perry 
and he was shooting, uh, Dennis was, the 6XC at the time, and mm-hmm. was really frustrated with it. You know, it had issues with, you know, kind of donuts. Um, you know, people know about that. You know, you couldn't reload it very much without encountering other things, and he was really frustrated by some of the performance he was getting. And, and so he and, and Emery just had a bullshit session at the, um, you know, at the end of the day. And Dave's like, well, what do you want in a cartridge? And, and, and Dennis came up, there was like a list of like five things that, uh, or eight things rather, you know, in terms of, um, you know, had to, you know, feed out of a, uh, you know, a short action well, had to use readily available components, um, had to, uh, you know, he wanted it to be um, published with the reloading data on it. And I still have some of those original Hornaday boxes that have the actual charge weights of Varget and 40, H4350 on them um, so that a guy could just literally mimic what was in the in the thing. And so anyway, on and on. And, and the next year, uh, Dave Emery had worked on those qualities and came to him with a prototype cartridge shoot. And um, and at first, Dave wanted to call it the 6.5 DeMille, but kind of like Townsend Wayland, <laughs> Dennis DeMille's like, no, don't do that. And he was working for um, Creedmoor Sports. And, of course, Creedmoor is a storied name in the world of long range. And so they ended up naming it the 6.5 Creedmoor. And, and Creedmoor, Creedmoor Sports is, for that, the vast majority have no idea, is a high-power shooting retailer, basically. Yes, um, yeah, you know, they're, 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 one of the, they're one of the great um, sources of... Um, of uh, just long range, like long range, you know, precision reloading gear across the course type gear. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my shooting jacket, shooting glove, shooting stool, uh, spotting scope stand, you know, all that, all that stuff was, came from Creedmoor before anybody <laughs> knew, knew what it was. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, um, just seeing how, well, it's exhausting and funny just seeing how everything's developed and, uh, and some of the some of the pushback. Uh... Yeah, well, what what happened was, and and this is where we're finally lurching our way to the the six creed. Is as soon as it was announced in two thousand and seven, you know, I ordered a, a six by Creedmoor to be built, and actually, I, I sent a seven hundred action to Daryl Holland, and he was able to get a um, a reamer, I don't know, from Pacific or or whoever else was doing it, and um, was going to chamber one up for me before the ammo was even out. But concurrently, I had been talking with um, some buddies at Hornaday about one. I wanted to do a story on how to make a wildcat. You know, I'd never really gone. Yeah. I knew about it from from a distance. I'd read about it, but I like kind of wanted to go through the process myself and and do a story on it. And um, because there was this brand new case that nobody had fooled with. Heck, at that point, nobody was even shooting the six five Creedmoor, let alone anything else. Um, you know, kind of talked back and forth about it and decided to do a, do a six millimeter version of it. And that was the, um, that was the start of the six, five creed of the six creed more. But of course we didn't call it that um, in the, in the very first story, you know, me, me being the, you know, um, the bone wit that I am, I called it the six millimeter hole H O L E for Hornaday Outdoor Life Express. I thought that was just a great name. I mean, how could you do that? And, um, you know, so we did the, um, we, um, we did the um, cartridge 
and in, and in fairness, fairness, it was Joe Teeland, who was one of the ballistic engineers at Hornaday, who did the cartridge drawing and the design. You know, I want to be very clear about, you know, my, my role was just, um, um, you know, I'm like the guy on the uh, slave galley who just beats the drum. And, you know, yeah, yeah. So that was, yeah, that was, that was my job. The, the people actually <laughs> pulling on the oars were people other than me. Um, but, you know, so, um, you know, Joe Thielen was the one who, um, did the, did the cartridge drawings for it. And, um, anyway, we got, you know, uh, reamers, you know, dies made and stuff. And I needed a partner to work with on this and it was George Gardner. And so with George's help, I sent him actually an action from a Saco 85 that I had. Um, I ordered up, a at the, at the time, it was a brand new Macmillan A5 stock, um, the, you know, sort of the, the coolest of loopholes, uh, target scopes, um, you know, and, and a couple of other things. Oh, I got a, a neat surefire suppressor. You know, it was kind of like a project gun, like a project car, like a concept car, yeah. really. And, uh, you know, put that together. And actually, it took us a couple of years to, um, you know, sort of dot all the I's and cross all the T's. It's a fairly slow moving process. And then, of course, we had the big lead times with writing stories and then when they were published. And so in August 2010, that issue of Outdoor Life, that was the introduction of, a, I think we called it a new thousand yard cartridge um, at that point. And of course, it wasn't called the Six Creed. It didn't, ha- it didn't have a name. And, uh, you know, and really, it was just a one shot. We, we had no, I had no expectation that it was going to be anything other than just a curiosity. A, a one. There was no expectation that this was going to do anything or go anywhere. And then all of a sudden, uh, PRS happened, and uh, you know, it just was the kind of the right thing at the right time. And that's a that's a whole other kind of chapter of its story. But um, you know, George Gardner was involved in PRS, had been shooting like two forty threes, and in the early days, people really thought that was going to be a gas gun game. Right. You know, yeah. that was that was kind of what where people were oriented. And, you know, you could shoot 243s in the gas guns, but it was kind of hard magazine length. You know, the bullet size and everything else didn't work. It turned out what did work really well in that configuration was the six creed. Um, oh, and by the way, when Hornaday called it the six creed, they had failed to mention this fact to Creedmoor Sports. Oh, and, and so they came out with these components Suddenly, and Creedmoor Sports was like, "What the hell? What is this?" And so they, to, they, they realized that it's sort of in everybody's excitement. They kind of forgot to mention it to Creedmoor that uh, Creedmoor Sports that this was happening. So they had to kind of untangle that little that little mess. Um, oh man! In the early days, but yeah, kind of funny. It's all right. I get excited too sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, what the what the hell was I? Was I gonna say? Do you have any favorite? You have any favorite pet cartridges of that of that kind of that kind of class? I mean, I don't know. I find that I am constantly switching so much between what it, like. There's so much. It's kind of our job, fortunately, to to test out to try out new stuff. Um, and and you know maybe maybe a better direction for this is why don't you explain like. You know, because this is something, you know, we've discussed a lot recently and story on like like modern cartridge design or just some of the basics of why. Because in like just some bumpkin like me that if I wasn't, the posi- you know, in the position and 
interacting with people who know more than I do, more than I do, you know, like to a certain degree, it's like, yeah, a guy has no reason to switch from his 30 out six for, for plenty of stuff. But at the same time, a lot of these newly designed cartridges are quantifiably better performing. Um, absolutely. Why don't you touch on that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that that's a really good point. And this is kind of this big inflection point that I think so much of this debate and heat on both sides revolves around because, you know, take the six speed, for example, you know, you'll get a lot of people saying, well, it doesn't do anything. My 243 doesn't do, or it's no better than that, you know, or, you know, you could kind of do this with other, other classes of cartridge. You know, you could look at the new seven PRC and people be like, oh, my seven rem mag doesn't do anything. My seven rem mag doesn't do. And, um, you know, and there are some valid points in that perspective, depending on the level and demands of the shooting that you do. The problem with those traditional cartridges, though, and the ab and sort of the people who just reflexively defend them is that if the seven rem mag or the 300 wind mag or the 300 weatherby or, or any of those kind of classic you know, quote unquote, high performing cartridges of, of yesteryear. If they didn't exist today, nobody would design them the way they are designed today. We just know so much more about how to make a good cartridge than we did 25, 30, and certainly 50, 60, 70 years ago. And it's like, it's, you know, the analogy I, I've, you know, you've heard it a bunch of times, like trucks. You know, we love F 150s, great truck. Nobody can look at a new 2023 model and then go back to the mid 70s and say, this new model doesn't do anything that my old one doesn't do. Yeah. If you're looking to get from point A to point B, you know, both of them will accomplish that. But to pretend that they're, you know, that not only are they somehow the same, but the old one is better is just doesn't hold up. And so the principles of modern cartridge design are as sort of a series of tenets of best practices that we now understand that lead to better long range performance, whether we're talking about, um, you know, from a pure precision standpoint of competition, or even from a terminal standpoint of, you know, when it comes to the ethics of hunting at extended distances, longer ranges. Um, and, and, you know, really what we know is like, just take the, the case design, the, the, the brass, the, the cartridges have much more parallel walls they have much steeper shoulders. What that allows for is much more consistency with how the cartridge fits in the chamber. It's going to tend to center up a lot better. Whereas in the old days, you know, because we had issues with, um, you know, sort of body powders that we'd use or, you know, very temperature sensitive things where maybe if you went hunting in a tropical climate, all of a sudden you're going to get spikes in powder pressure or, or in chamber pressure, especially if you're talking about hunting big and dangerous game where a cartridge might need, get stuck, in which case you want something with a really big, notable taper to the to the case. You want a nice shallow shoulder so that it'll extract easily. Or even in that time. In that time. In that time. <laughs> well, look at the 308. You know, when the 308 was developed, it was developed in order to feed and semi-automatic and automatic weapons. It was a military cartridge. And so, you know, having a taper to the case, having a, a, a less steep shoulder were very desirable. But in today's world where we've got 
such better machining, um, better tolerances, better powders, better everything, you know, we can be a little more picky about how those cases are designed. And so when you look at how a 6.5 Creed or a 6 Creed or a 6 GT or a 6 Dasher or a 6.5 PRC or a 6.8 Western, when you look at how those are constructed with steep shoulders, faster twist rates for heavier, for caliber um, and more aeroballistically aero efficient bullets, when you look at how we've tightened up neck um, dimensions, you know, it used to be, you know, if you look at the Sammy specs, the, the drawings where the neck dimensions on a, on a 308, it, I think, you know, it'll allow anywhere up to like 4,000th of slop in the neck per Sammy specs. Whereas, you know, now we're down to like a thousandth or a half a thousandth because we just know how to do it better. So when you take all of those elements of modern cartridge design and combine them together in a cartridge, which we have, you know, again, I just reeled off a bunch of them that are sort of built around those principles. You know, we have better cartridges today, measurably better than we did, you know, uh, 20 years ago and, and beyond. And and the proof is in, you know, certainly in the competitive circuit. You know, look at what's winning. And it's not the old school cartridges. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and there's a couple examples. Like I, you know, I... I have like feet in both camps, so to speak. Like I would never, and I don't think you would ever tell someone who just has their, their trusty, you know, their trusty deer rifle that they've had for 30 years that whatever caliber it is that they need to change, you know, like that's not what anybody is really saying. And it, people get really defensive about that and maybe think that, that writers or you, know, you or me or whoever is telling them that they need something that they don't need because that's not the case but it is also fun to nerd out about this stuff and like and see see the ball being pushed further down you know like it it makes me think of like the new you know and i i haven't had much time on one yet but uh the seven prc for example you know the, the class oh what can that do that my seven mag can't do well if you have a bunch of custom work done on a seven mag like yeah you could probably you could you know i think you can get pretty damn close to what the seven prc can do but when you're talking uh a 500 to 1500 factory gun like you're not going to be able to find something in seven mag that the set that can't that can match what the same gun in seven prc can do if that if that makes sense yeah um, you know like running throats out and 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 so, you know, some guys, frankly, like, you know, just taking an older cartridge and I mean, that's what they've got. There's no reason necessarily that you need to switch, but, uh, and, and another, the other, the other thing that makes me think of due to this, this recent M1 grand project of mine is M, you know, people that, you know, just all in 30, you know, in the 30 out six is, gen, you know, in modern hunting loads is more powerful, but, uh, you know, they ah oh, two two back to back World War champ thirty out six. Well, thirty out six ammo. <laughs> and I mentioned this in another podcast on the M one we did for Outdoor Life, but uh, M two ball ammo is basically like your M one Grand ammo is basically like shooting a six five Creedmoor, like ballistically and actually poorer downrange. You know, at the muzzle, it's like a six five, um, and you know, which learning in my you know in some research and and talking to some of my mentors about the M1, you know, learned that it was originally developed in a cartridge called the 276 Peterson. 
That's right. That never went anywhere, but is basically like a 6.5 Creedmoor or a little under. It's a 7 millimeter bullet at 2,700 feet per second, 125 grain, I think. So really a little under what your average 6.5 Creedmoor load will do. But, you know, it's it just, it, people tend to get so wrapped up in, in just what they perceive as over hype or whatever, whatever it may be. It's just, I laugh about it, but cause I have to deal with it every day. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... We kind of get these, we kind of get these two camps of people and sometimes people can shift from one to the other. I mean, like you, I've got my feet in both camps too. There are cartridges, you know, the 35 Remington is so near and dear to my heart. You know, that was, you know, I, I, I had a lot of time in the woods with that when I was younger and, you know, I just have a tremendous amount of affection for those old lever guns and that cartridge. I will never not want to, uh, you know, take that out and shoot it. Um, and the same thing with my OTS 6s and everything else. I love them all too. But one of the things that I've seen in doing this job for so long is that, you know, a lot of people love to read about new guns and new tech and new cartridges. There's also a tremendous number of people who really what they want is validation for what they already have. They love to hear about, they, they would love nothing more than for you or me or somebody else to do a review of the gun that they've carried for 25 years and the cartridge they yeah. like to use. That would just, you know, gratify them to no end. You know, people love that validation. And so when you praise, send the praises of something new, whether it's a cartridge or a gun that is outside of that, you know, there tends to be a little predisposition of being crabby towards it. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> but yeah. And, uh, as we've, as we've seen this year, which it's funny, you know, I, I keep bringing up the six, five Creed more, not only because Hornady pays me to, but, um, <laughs> hey, dude, when, when are you going to share some of that Hornady money with me? <laughs> Tell you what, man, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough to come by tougher than you would think, according to all the conspiracy theorists. But, um, but you know, those checks are those those checks roll in. I mean, of course, of course, the thing is hilarious about that. That's assuming you know Hornady hasn't been the sole manufacturer of like six five Creedmoor stuff since like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. No, but no, like the idea that somehow <laughs> Hornady has a, a stranglehold on six five Creedmoor sales is pretty funny. Yeah, and and I'll wrap up the, like the six five the six five Creedmoor talk with an observation that objectively it is a like it is a more ac- inherently accurate cart with factory rifles and factory ammo. It is one of the most accurate cartridges you can possibly buy. Absolutely, like the most between shootable. I mean, yeah. and, and we've seen this like over the last over the last year. I have shot a shitload of groups for record, like hundreds and hundreds of five shot groups for record, you know, a lot with a three and a lot of them with a three Oh eight, which is pretty mild too. Yeah. And a lot with a six, five Creedmoor and two seventy and six, five, 300 and 30 odd six. And like the, the, if you know, you get two identical rifles, one in three Oh eight or 300 wind mag, 30 odd six, any, you name it. And the other ones in six five Creedmoor, like the one in six five Creedmoor is going to shoot better. Yeah, it, it is. You know, <laughs> almost got, guaranteed. Yeah, and we've got decades of data behind this. You know, because when I started doing this and gathering data, you know, I joined Outdoor Life in, in two thousand and one. Um, 
you know, the, the you know, most things were introduced in OT6, 300 win mag, 243 was big. There was a big push back then for the 7mm 08s. And then there were also all of the short mags, the whole thing, all of the, and the super shorts on top of it. You know, and we, you know, we shot and gathered data on, you know, all of them, you know, and then the ultra mags as well. Oh, my God. Um, you know, so it's not like there was any um, predisposition from one over the other. I mean, the data is the data. And over the years, we have seen, not surprisingly, our group sizes with factory ammunition and factory guns keep getting smaller and narrower, keep getting better. You know, and their you know modern cartridge design and and modern manufacturing techniques are are really behind that, and and better projectiles and better everything, better powders and so forth. And then um, you know, there's just also the fact that these milder, better engineered cartridges just shoot like freaking crazy, and they're easier to shoot, and they just shoot better, even just on a one to one basis. And the data is the data. You know, yeah, and you've, you know, I've heard stories from, you know, you have, you have quite a few pretty good elk, elk stories. I mean, I, I almost, almost on a daily basis, you hear guys even up here in Alaska, oh, I don't know about the six, five creed more, maybe. Yeah. It's like, well, buddy, I got one, I got, I got a, a junker Winchester XPR in my safe in six, five, that's killed more, like more big game animals than you have. <laughs> like that one rifle, like it just, you know, it, it goes back to, and I, I've, and I've seen this reading across multiple, you know, it's like, it's like the shooting editor of outdoor life platform or, or tenant, I guess, to like, you know, cartridges that you can, that are accurate, that you can shoot well, kill stuff, man. I mean, it's just, there's all that there, there's all, they're all pieces of the puzzle that have to fit together to be effective. Especially combined with the, with today's class of great bullets. You know, I mean, if, if anything was sort of a decisively tipped the equation in favor of these milder cartridges on big game, it's these fabulously reliable, consistent, and accurate big game bullets. You know, I mean, I remember when the Acubon was introduced and like, holy cow, that thing was just unbelievable. And then, you know, some of these Barnes bullets have been great. Um, you know, some of these Burger bullets are just fabulous. And of course, things like the Hornady ELDX line of stuff. I mean, we are just spoiled with really good bullet choices. And heck, they're even older bullet choices, as you well know. Look at the old 140 grain partition. What does that do yep. when spit out kills, of a 65 grade more? Kills grizzly bears pretty fucking dead. <laughs> it kills <laughs> I mean, it puts their dicks in the dirt. And, you know, for me, that that moment in particular was, um, you know, I did, I did go to Africa with the 6.5 Creedmoor and was shooting um, at that point, the brand new uh, Hornady GMX bullet, their monumental bullet. And um, that wasn't the most accurate 6.5 Creedmoor bullet out there, but my God, the terminal ballistics on that thing, it killed everything. It killed small stuff at longer ranges because it certainly is pretty damn accurate. But for me, what was interesting was how well it performed on the big stuff. You know, I killed a giant eland with it with just tremendous um, uh, results at 200 yards. That's, for people who don't know, it's the world's largest antelope. They're, you know, bigger than a freaking bison, um, you know, you know 2,000-pound animal. 
Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I killed a couple water buck with it, like a lot of big stuff. And really what I saw again and again and again on that trip, and of course other guys on that trip were just knocking over all kinds of stuff too. The only bullets we even recovered were the ones from my animals was that broadside shot on the, um, on the Eland and then two quartering shots on two different water buck because dead nuts every single time those bullets would do three, three and a half feet of straight penetration perfect mushroom and just destroying everything in its path. And that was really, that was like the lights on moment for me where, where suddenly I was like, Oh my God, like I just started to really appreciate the capabilities of it. And then, you know, as you know, killers kill shit. And a lot of our friends and, you know, we're, we, you know, and you and me as well, you know, have taken these, these cartridges out with tremendous success on all kinds of stuff, you know, so people who don't think it's an elk cartridge or a deer cartridge or, or whatever, or a bear cartridge, you know, just, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just can't get behind their logic. If you don't want to shoot it, go ahead. Don't, but you can do an awful lot of very ethical, good work with these mild cartridges. Oh yeah, for sure. And, uh, <laughs> which kind of, you know, you mentioned rifle accurate, you know, accuracy that's a subject that we talk about pretty frequently obviously because i you know it's either oh this rifle was a freaking dog or this one's shooting you know shoot shooting shooting tits off it was it's uh pretty it's been an eye-opening experience to get like take take as i've after i've been hired to have the time and ammo frankly to really see what rifles are capable of and you know, I've basically come to the conclusion that I was kind of not maybe doing things wrong, but was kind of misguided in a lot of my over for a lot of years of um, hunting and load development on really what the capability of my rifles well, dude, were. I, not that I was doing things wrong, but right. But no, no, just, just just let me say this yeah, though. Yeah. As you know, if you do your part, that rifle's going to shoot half inch all day. Yeah, <laughs> all day. <laughs> All day. Okay, all yeah. keep, keep going because it throws it's sort of what you're you're working toward, right? Yeah, it throws one out there in outer space. Oh, that had to be me, you know. Had to be the wind come up or something, you know. Uh, but having and what's really done it because uh, if I if I buy a rifle, rifles that I buy, man, I really want them to shoot, and I will kind of, like. There's ways you can kind of facilitate the groups you want or you know, like the classic guy goes to a shooting range kind of gets his rifle zeroed shoots one three shot group that's under an inch up oh, i got a i got a half inch gun you know when it really like and you know some of our are the guy you know our friends basically at hornady um like i don't know jane but seth i know um like you know they've got a great podcast talking about there are several episodes of their podcast talking about group sizes and dispersions, and just raw, beefy data sets that kind of like disrupts some of what a lot of people and hand loaders do. You know, I always used to do the oh, load five rounds of, you know, this charge weight, bump up half a grain, five rounds of this charge weight and go shoot them. And whichever one shoots best, that's what I'm going with, you okay. know, or maybe try to fine tune it with that. But 
things like the, you know, just sheer volume of data. And you could talk about like, you know, how it's, we've gone with doing, going, you know, like the five, five shot groups, but I've found just having rifles that I can, that I have no personal stake in testing object, like helps my objectivity and really like has given me a better, a better grasp on what's a really good shooting rifle. Like, you know, this Savage 110, I haven't torn it out of there to see if it is a proof barrel, but it looks like a proof barrel, carbon barrel, 223 yeah, that's, that's, that, yeah. uh, that I've got like that fucking thing shoots, you know, I got it out and shot it a few times, you know, shot it a few times. And I'm like, man, that's, that's pretty, pretty tight. But as I've continued and shot like 40 groups with the thing, it's like the average, the average group size has gotten smaller, not bigger. Um, across, you know, 15 different types of ammo, you know, and so like I've, it's been kind of eye-opening and cool to be able to really see like, all right, what's a really special rifle or what's a really good shooting rifle? Exactly. You know, and you know, you, we've talked about this a a lot, you know, when, whenever you or I get a new rifle and like, we want every rifle to win. Right. And, and really, you know, my, one of the things I enjoy about it is like, you know, I approach each rifle with, I really want to have that thing just perform lights out. I did have one exception that I can tell you about later. It was actually with the very first <laughs> proof barrels. Um, oh. I had a chip <laughs> on my shoulder about that, which was kind of funny. But, um, you know, I mean, we really do our level-headed best to um, to have each rifle shine as, as well as it can in terms of its performance that said, you know, we don't, you know, I, and I, and it took me a while to get this. Like, so I'm going to just preface this by saying like, I know where guys who get attached to like bragging about a certain group size or whatever come from, you know, it's a, it's a place of, it's a place of ego and identification and so forth. And, you know, I had it too. Everybody wants a rifle that shoots tight, right? And so if it happens to lob three shots down there, that cluster, you know, all right, man, we did it. We call it good. Or if you're doing a five shot group and four of them cluster and one goes off to the side, well, that's a, that's a flyer. Uh, No, actually. I mean, if you legitimately ganked the thing, like, and you could see and tell that is a fire. Otherwise it's just what the rifle does. And you, you remember like you and I talking about, don't make, excuses for the rifle let it be what it's going to be and actually it's a very liberating thing so that when we shoot these things you know if it shoots like four tight and then one off to the side i'm like oh that's kind of interesting you know and you keep repeating this process again and again and you sort of get to a much more correct and accurate reading of what the performance of these are and even our five shot groups even though they're so much better than three shots are still inadequate and it's because mm-hmm. when I go back to like, so I've been reading all that Townsend Wayland stuff for him, it was a 10 shot group minimum, minimum back then in like, you know, 1908 it, yeah. <laughs> it required to accurately assess things. So this knowledge has been out there for a long time, but man, you know, just in the interest of time, expense, handling the recoil and ego, you know, we end up with these, all these half inch wonders that when you actually look at them in a much more careful way, just fall to pieces. Yep. Well, and, and one of the things that, 
you know, I, I don't remember if it was like the group, your groups are too small podcast, but where those Hornady guys explain, this has been a, a, pro, a learning process for me is you would always say, oh, well, that's just in the noise of what your rifle does. And what you mean by that is what the Hornady, what the guys in that podcast call um, dispersion. You know, if you, you know, there's going to be like a overall circle that all your shots, no matter what, are going to fall inside. And in the middle of that circle is going to be, you know, like your actual point of impact. You know, it's uh, completely filled in. And as the farther you move out from the center, it's going to get a little bit less dense and a little bit less dense. But it's still, uh, I'm trying to think if that's maybe making sense. I think, I think, Um, think, like, here's an example. You know, I just, you know, a few weeks ago shot the Night Forest ELR match, extreme long range match, you know, and targets way the hell out there, out past 2000, average target distance, like 1100, you know, and it, it took me a long time to get my, my uh, load where I wanted to, I was shooting a 300 PRC um, using those 230 A tips. And after the long load development process, I finally ended up with uh, something that was shooting in the uh, 0.5s in the average. So 0.5 something inches, five shot groups. Now, when I wrote about that, you know, I, I was, clear to mention that that included groups as small as like 0.24 something you know quarter in yeah up to 0.84 something and the the fact is is that with all of these values things are going to fall across a bell curve you're going to have mm-hmm. majority of your bell curve is going to be in that case in that 0.5s you know with some in the 0.4 some in the 0.6s and then you're going to have fewer samples that are bigger or smaller but every now and then you're going to have them so you're going to have every now and then with my gun that shoots in the 0.5s, I'm going to end up with groups in the 0.8s. Mm-hmm. Fact, you know, and it has nothing to do with how good I am or or anything. It's just the nature of the beast. And what happens is guys will, one, not even shoot five shots. They'll shoot three shots. They'll get a couple of those in the 0.2s and be like, I've got a quarter minute gun. No, you don't. You know, yeah. I mean, Nothing against your gun, but that's not an accurate assessment of how accurate it is. No, yeah, that's uh, and and the more money you spend on a gun, the harder it is to to not be Ooh. be emotionally attached to, to, to the result. That's even that's even hard for me, you know, because I I um you know with all that Hornady money, I buy a lot of guns. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, you know, but I, I you know and. Uh, you know, when you take a big cut at the plate on something you really hope comes together and it's and it's just not quite shooting as good. And part of that's we're a victim of how good things are. Like you're like uh you've been shooting that Stevens 334 lately, right? And that Yeah, yeah. This new uh Yeah, so give 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 the quick rundown on what you found out with that thing. Well, so this uh the Stevens 334, they released it at SHOT Show this year, which I'm kind of, like, I started out on the o, the OG budget rifle, the Remington 710, <laughs> um, which I still have, and it's still, like, it actually is a pretty decent shooting gun. Um, shoots a lot better than some other guns maybe I recently have tested. Um, but, <laughs> so the Stevens 334, you know, like, is one of few, and I've seen a few pop up recently, but... Um, offered initially in a woods a walnut stock which is kind of i have no use for a walnut stock in my hunting other than just novelty but i like it i think it's cool that um 
that they're going there because it's just kind of a rarity these days. And most budget rifles, like they're just in one way or another, they're just fucking cheap. Right. You know, they're cheap. Um, they can do amazing things. A lot of them can do things that they really, you know, shouldn't be able to do. But there's always problems with them or, or issues, you know, like, uh, you know, a Ruger American, typically they shoot really well, but the actions are horrible. Um, kind of same thing with a Savage Axis. The, a- the action in stock is horrible. So the Stevens, I lo- I'm like, it's actually kind of a decent looking rifle. Um, yeah, immediately I requested one in 308 just to, <laughs> you know, be a, be a little different, you know, because we do end up getting a lot of our test guns in 6.5 Creedmoor. Um and, uh, so that, while that was on the burner, our gun test in April, we got a one, a model in six, five and man, that thing had just an awful trigger. Mm. Like the, the boy, the boys at Stalingrad had it better. <laughs> Defending Stalingrad had it better. <laughs> I mean, holy shit. Like, you know, and if, if you're an archer and you know about target panic, like this is a trigger that will give you target panic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just the long pull, heavy, like five, you know, almost six pound trigger that's just long and drawn out. There's no, well, there's it, no it, Christmas. It's the trigger equivalent of sitting down for a heavy five course meal. You're going <laughs> yeah. to be there for a while. But, uh, yeah. It's going to be quite a bit to get through. But the end result is pretty good. It works pretty. The end good. result was pretty good. So yeah, we at the at the gun test, you know, the, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be issue. But I wanted it. I I, I true, like I said, I want it, and I'm root even a little harder for for the 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 budget guns that I might take a shine into. So, um, you know, we're shooting a whole our whole team shooting five shot groups off a bipod and i'll be damned like that rifle started it, you had to concentrate but it would it shot some pretty some consistent t- consistently tight groups and uh so we leave from there and i'm still waiting for months and months for my my 334 that i ordered which is kind of a good thing because i think we had one of the you know maybe first production early production models that they're just trying to get out to get tested and uh I got mine in the batch that where they've actually officially started shipping them. And, uh, I've been shooting the heck out of that. And it's not, it's not like maybe if I was going into a blank, I'd say it's knocking my socks off, but it's just shooting really well. And it's for, uh, a rifle you can get for like 430 bucks or so. It's a fucking nice rifle. You know, the stock isn't bad. The fit of it, um, you know, the, I can see why, why the one we had shot accurately because the, you know, the receiver's a big solid receiver, flat bottom with a, a hefty recoil lug that fits down into a, an aluminum bedding block in the wood stock and, you know, has uh, some inserts, really sleeves for the, your, your action screws that I think they act basically like bedding pillars, you know, because they want you torquing it to 60 inch pounds, which is like kind of a no-no for an all-wood stock. Right. Um, so anyway, but I've been shooting this, and it shoots pretty damn well. I mean, shoots almost identically to the 6.5 Creedmoor we had, just a little bit opener. I shot I shot more groups, and I think my overall average of like 29 groups was uh, 1.2 inches, basically. Yeah. Which, I think it was 1.2. Really fine. You know, again, that is a lot of data. 
and to have everything average at that inch and a quarter or, or, or better, you know, that is. And that's all the, and that's all the groups. That's all. Like, yeah, well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. You know, that, you know, and when you take fine shooting rifle, you know, and, and what, yeah. we're spoiled in that, you know, you get to test, you know, however many loads you put through it and, and stuff. And, and, and also that gun had a couple other virtues, you know, for the price, at least our, our sample that we had at the gun test, you know, the wood on it was fairly attractive. And yeah, and it had that, you know, that three position safety where, you know, it locks the bolt down in the rearmost um, safe position, which, you know, for any, any, you know, rifle, you're going to be humping through brush or, or whatever is actually a pretty nice feature to have. And then that middle position, you know, it was still on safe, but allows you to unload it or, and check the chamber. And then of course, forward fire, you know, so you know, it, it was a really, you know, there are a couple of things aesthetically that are a little clunky about it, but like you, I, I, I root for the underdogs. I love, I love seeing these um, budget products come in and sort of be a little disruptive and, and, yeah. and, and in some cases do better than some of the other brands that are premium brands that, that are, that are pretty proud of themselves. Yeah. It, uh, you know, and, and I had a couple more, well, <laughs> Dr. Frank Schultz, who was over here the other day, who's been on a lot of episodes of the podcast, he, uh, he, you know, I'd showing him and he's like, man, this is a pretty nice, nice feeling rifle. And that's kind of the same result, the feel we had about it when we started doing practical shooting, you know, shooting off barricades and different field positions is like, it's not, it's not pretending to be an ultralight mountain rifle. Like it's just a normal weight, solid, um, you know, the action runs smooth, but stuff like, like, uh, the, on the butt, um, the butt pad, the top, the, the, on the heel, which is the top of the butt pad has a little horseshoe shaped, hard plastic kind of piece glued on there that really like helps it when you're popping that stock to your shoulder, you know, you know, a soft rubber pad, a lot of times will grab your shirt or yeah, no sure your jacket, you know, just like little details like that. There's a lot of well, that, well, thoughtfulness that went into like, it. Uh, sporting shotguns. You know, sporting shotguns will have that recoil pad on them. Interesting. And it's a nice feature. And it's for that thing, you know, because it's a very dynamically employed uh, gun, the shot, you know, the shotguns are. And so having that hard plastic insert at the top just makes it a little slicker so that as it comes up and starts to, you know, brush against your um shirt or jacket or, or shooting vest, you know, as you're doing the mount, it's not going to suddenly catch and give you a bad position. And yeah, that is, that's, I think that's a great little touch. And especially in a milder uh, recoiling cartridge, um, you know, where you maybe you don't need maximum schmush on the recoil pad to help, yeah. help you know, help you tolerate it. Um, it's a, it's a, I liked it too. Yeah, well, and the, I mean, and it's offered in three hundred eight, two forty three, and six five Creedmoor. I mean, it's just like kind of a a nice nod to like the classic deer hunter's rifle. Um, I thought, and I mean, you know, it's owned Stevens is owned by Savage. The bolt, the you know, the action runs a lot, a hell of a lot smoother than a Savage one ten or or uh, Axis. Even you know, it's just it's a good rifle. So that yeah, that's. That's one example of a gun that shoots, you know, almost a little better than it should. I mean, shit, it shot be- shoot it shot better than the Tika T3X I tested last year. Any any of the other um, you know, well, any all the budget rifles and plus, you know, several of the, you know, 600 to 1200 dollar rifles I I accuracy tested last fall. Um, 
but yeah, no, it's rifle accuracy is an interesting thing. And I, you know, I don't, I almost think that we sometimes shortchange ourselves when we get too, um, wrapped up in just, you know, what will this three shot do or in, in at times I think it can save us money and ammo by just shooting larger data sets to begin with. If that, if that makes sense, you know, rather than, all right, I'm going to slowly two shots at a time, work myself through this entire box and a half ammo. Then I'm gonna have to go to the store and buy two more boxes. Cause I didn't actually like figure out what was going on. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's something, there is something to be said for that. You know um, it's kind of like the buy once cry once, um, you know, philosophy where if you're just nibbling around at the edges with small data samples and then drawing sort of uh, broad conclusions based on those small data samples. You know, there's a good chance that you're going to encounter frustration later on. You know, again, may- maybe it dumped those three shots into a nice tiny cluster you could cover with a dime, and you know, good for you. You know, but you know, if you really want to know that rifle's point of impact, if you really want to know what its um, you know precision is in a in a in a, in a defensible way, you have got to um, use larger data sets. There's no, there's no way around it. There's no shortcut really. Yeah. But uh, so I guess one other thing I wanted to talk about before we got to sign off is uh, Alaska stories. You have, <laughs> you have been to Alaska a number of times. <laughs> I, um, do. I, I love me some Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. You've been, you've been what moose hunting up here, brown bear hunting up here. I've been on a couple brown bear hunts, what else? black bear hunts, um, sheep hunting, um, duck hunts. Um, what else? There's probably some other stuff. Actually, you were saying, you, you were saying that you're working on a grand slam of unsuccessful sheep hunts. That's right. right my super skunk. <laughs> I'm, my super I, skunk. I, I, I'm halfway to my super skunk. I got skunked on my doll sheep hunt in Alaska, and last fall I got skunked on my bighorn sheep um, hunt in Alberta. So all I have to do is skunk myself on desert and stones, and I will have accomplished something um, that uh, will make me want to uh, jump off a cliff. I think. <laughs> the cliff- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, well, I well I I feel you there, man. I it's been it's been. A couple of, the last two years, I haven't killed a sheep, and so basically, it has been at this point. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, last year was kind of yeah. I had a lot of good hunts last year, but in terms of actual success and connecting in the animals, it was the least successful um, hunting season of my entire life by by a long shot. And it started off with getting skunked on that uh, otherwise really awesome sheep hunt in Alberta. Um, and then just continued with uh, elk hunt where I where actually I passed on a bull I should have shot in all fairness so I guess that one maybe doesn't count but then you know did a couple of uh, mountain mule deer hunts that you know didn't pan out and then some flatland deer hunts hell I even did in some ways what should have been a relative gimme deer hunt in in Ohio during their firearm season um, with that new uh, 360 buck hammer and never saw anything there so it was it was kind of a grim stretch for uh, for John last year. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to lie. Gonna I lie. I hear you too because it was no moo. It was no moo. We're getting pretty sparse on moose meat in the freezer. 
so the pressure will be on this year. But I'm feeling I'm feeling better about this year. Um, you know, I guess kicked off in February. I shot that. Well, shot those two wolves. Should have been three in Alberta. And then bear season was pretty good. You know, helped my my son got his first bear, which we've got to re-record his his story because uh, of my retarded self and technical difficulties. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, his bear, and I managed to shoot a couple, you know, the, a grizzly bear, and then got, got another black, a nice black bear with my bow. Nice. So, uh. Yeah, I had, I had to look yeah. vicariously, um, through you and the, and the other staff members. And, uh, I don't know when I'm going to get back up to Alaska to hunt, but, you know, one, one funny story was, uh, um, and actually this goes back to the old 6.5 thing, and we didn't touch on the 6.5 PRC or, or its predecessor, you know, the 6.5 Psalm. But, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, in terms of shooting at longer ranges, you know, there's a, there's a wide variety of opinions and I'm not really an advocate for myself. That said, you know, I kind of know what my effective distance is and, and, and you know what that comfort level is. And in some of the places I hunt out West, you know, you're just, you're only going to get so close to some of these animals in some of these situations. And, um, this was a case where, uh, good good buddy of mine who was um you know sort of intricately involved with the the early days of the six five psalm came up to alaska on a grizzly hunt and um you know he he and his his other hunting partner were in camp and um uh with the guide it was a backcountry camp uh, for interior grizzly and they uh they spotted a a pretty good boar you know but who was a who was a decent poke off and um and he started to set up on the bear. The guy's like, oh, you, you can't do that from here. And uh, he looked at the guy and said, look, uh, the law says I have to have a guide in Alaska. It doesn't say I have to listen to him. And he laid down, <laughs> plugged that freaking bear, dumped it. You know, at, you know, I think he was at like 500 yards or so. And the guide was like, oh, my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. So at least in, <laughs> at least in that moment, there was a new convert born to uh, to one of the modern six fives. Yeah. Well, and, and that guy was is a uh, there was no basically no doubt about his effective range. <laughs> no, no, none whatsoever. <laughs> Oh man, yeah. Did you do you have any favorite any favorite trips that you've made up here? You know, I have done. Gosh, I did. You know, a few years. I've had so many good times up there. You know, it's just in terms of like the life of adventure and things. I mean, there's just nothing. There's just nothing quite like it. You know, and you actually helped um, me pull this this hunt together. It's been a few years ago when I did that uh, DIY drop camp moose hunt. Yeah. Um, you know, and that I did that with, uh, my buddy, our mutual buddy, Jason Nash works at, at federal premium. And, uh, you know, I had, I've been fortunate to take a couple moose, you know, a handful of moose, you know, over my career, but Jason hadn't shot one at that point. And so, um, you know, this area, the area we uh, flew into, which was sort of uh, lower down on the Yukon, um, and, uh, God, I'm trying to remember the, what was the name of the town that we flew out of? You might remember. I know, but I know, but you don't have to say it. Okay, but um, anyway, we we um, you know we were we were down there, and and you know I, I was looking for something big. You know, I was going to hold out for something particularly special, especially if I had to haul it through that damn 
that damn terrain up there. But Jason ended up shooting a really nice bull in the, in the mid fifties. That was a strange year. It was a little bit of a slow year. The weather was kind of off and, and weird, but, you know, just sharing that experience with him up there. And, you know, we had, you know, grizzlies come through camp one night we had, um, one night we had a, a actually a bear kind of scratching at our tent. It was after we had gotten the meat. <laughs> he had shot fairly early and we weren't like usually on those camps, you know, you can call and have a plane come in and grab the meat. The weather really prohibited that. And it was fairly warm and raining and wet. And so we really had to kind of pull out all the stops to preserve the meat. And, you know, I mean, we were all really anxious and as you know, you know, and Alaska right, rightfully so is very strict on, um, waste, you know, there's, you're not yeah. supposed to waste a damn thing. And, you know, me, the way I like to cook meat, I don't want to waste anything either. Like I'm, I'm right with you. Um, you know, and so we went to really extraordinary lengths. I can't remember how many days that meat was out there in that weather. And we dumped tons of pepper on it. And I built a, uh, you know, we kind of built a, uh, um, a, a bed of, um, pine boughs to kind of create airflow underneath. And then, you know, a, a tarp with airflow around it to keep the rain off and stuff. And it smelled um, a little, some of it smelled a little ripe, you know, when we brought it back into town, but then uh, we brought it in to be processed. And, uh, you, know, the, you know, we had obviously in large, uh, you know, large muscle groups, you know, so it wasn't like there were any, you know, we didn't stake the thing out, of course. Yeah. And the guy did the trimming on it. And he was just like, this meat is beautiful. And that was like the best news I had yeah. heard. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, kind of like perfectly aged meat and, uh, you know, with a little bit of trimming just came out great. So, you know, I mean, that was, that was a freaking wonderful trip and you'd be shocked to know I was carrying none other than a 30 out six. <laughs> <laughs> the 30 out six is a good cartridge, man. It, uh, it, I mean, yeah. People like, yeah, you can do it. You can do anything, shoot any, shoot anything up here with it, man. I mean, it's got, got so much flexibility. Um, I'm trying, you know, trying to think, like gather my thoughts here. Cause I've told after shooting, after like explicitly smoking grizzly bear on on video with a six five creedmoor and having it drop within like seven paces within seven paces of where i first shot it um i was told that you had to have at least a 338 wind mag you know when but but really a uh yeah i mean you know, even just the old the old dirty 30 is is a fantastic cartridge um but there yeah there's there's a lot of there's a lot of them out there um, yeah, it is. But just yeah. don't just don't tell anybody that I actually hunted with an odd six. You know, I have I have a reputation <laughs> to uphold, and uh, you know, I, I don't want anybody to think I'm tough enough to actually shoot one of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised. Uh, you know, you had that you had these uh, these Hornady 125 grain light recoil loads, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, what, what were those Remington ones called? The their light. I can't remember what their what their accelerators. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a funny. This is a funny story. My uh, my my introduction to hand loading was very crude. So at like 15 years old, I worked work, I worked potato fields in the summer since uh, since started when I was 11 or 12, and then when I was 15, I saved up that summer to buy 
a Remington Model 710 that I still have. And uh, I bought a Lee Classic loader kit, you know, the old hammer them in, hammer them into the next sizing die. And, yep. um, and I found on the primitive internet at that time of a bag, I got a bag of 500 of those accelerator sabots that really for people who don't know. Yeah. Yeah. For people who don't know, they, you can, you press a 22 caliber, like a 223 bullet into this plastic sabot and load it into your 30 caliber rifle. And I don't, I don't know how, I, I don't even remember at this point how poorly they shot, but I killed, like, I managed to get the thing zeroed and I killed quite a few coyotes with them over the years. Well, if it, if it, if you manage to connect with it, it's going to, yeah, it's going to do some damage, but you know, yeah, at some point, I don't know. Yeah. I'd be curious to know what the effective range is. Actually, it'd be funny, but it'd almost be funny to do a story on it. Just like the most, you know, because that was obviously part of the, the, the myth and the appeal, the law and I, or the legacy of the odd six is the wide variety of bullet sizes. You can, you know, everything from two twenties down to, all these tiny little things, you know, um, the do everything cartridge. That should be funny to go back and see, like, how good can you actually make one of those shoot, or, or what are you yeah. actually getting? Yeah, well, and it's you know, it's kind of my interest in the Ot Six is kind of reinvigorated. I you know through this M1 Grand story, and I'm testing these different specific M1 Grand ammo loads because they do need to be lower pressure than your run of the mill hunting ammo to not damage the rifle but uh one of my service rifle mentors i've told you this i'm just for um lent me a uh a custom uh which he said those those nasty post 64 model 70s the push feeds that's really a great gun and even jack o'connor was like in his i have his original review of him was like yeah this is actually a stronger action than the pre-64 um and anyway uh custom built you know post 64 model 70 30 out six and at like <laughs> about <laughs> super heavy krieger barrel and mcmillan target stock just to i just asked the guys like hey do you have a like a target 30 out six that i can just evaluate this ammo because m1s are not the most m1s and especially adding the human ele- human element of shooting m1s with service sites at 100 yards you're not getting the most accurate re- data set there um so I'm running this ammo through this rifle and uh yeah, it's kind of reinvigorated my my thirty out six interest. Well the weight then the thing does weigh like fourteen pounds and put a suppressor on there, it's a, just a pussycat to shoot. But uh, um it makes me think, do you have do you do you have a, thir- a favorite thirty out six bullet weight? You know I'm curious to hear what I, you say. So I got um my first thirty out six I had was an old uh, M77 that was a that was a gift from um, you know actually my my uh, my former father-in-law got a you know got me this and um, you know it was uh, I, I really you know I, I was just very nostalgically um, hooked at although the first 30 odd six I shot was an old um, surplus uh, 1903 old Ooh. Yeah. So this was when I was a kid and uh, I was hanging out with some buddies and one of my friend's older brothers, you know, older brothers back then, this was in a day of like lack of supervision anyway, like older brothers were 
like the most fun and the most trouble you could get into at the same time. Yeah. And so we were messing around, like, you know, just in these woods that we fool around in. And uh, he had this freaking, you know, Oh three, and we're all looking and and seeing that like thirty out six cartridge for the first time again. I didn't know anything. I was just like, "Oh my god, look at that!" And so we're in the woods, and we're like, well, "Where are we going to shoot this?" And we're near uh, and uh, some old railroad tracks, and so you know we would always like get railroad spikes, and I don't know what those plates are, those metal plates that you know kind of connect between the um, the railroad rails and the railroad ties that you drove this. Yeah, through. but we we grabbed one of those and somehow hung it on the offside of a about an eight inch tree, and I remember, um, you know, I mean, everybody's all nervous. And I took I took that thing. I can't remember, probably like twenty yards away or twenty feet away. I don't even know, <laughs> not that far, and shot through the tree and the freaking you know the that metal plate like went spinning off, and of course the echo like just scared the hell out of all of us and. You know, it, it's everything I could do not to drop the rifle. And then we went went over and looked at the the plate. And, of course, we must have just had some ball ammo. I couldn't even tell you. I'm sure it was just surplus ball ammo. I don't know what else it would have been. And, you know, had just driven a hole, a clean hole, right through that damn, all through the tree, of course, <laughs> yeah. and through the plate. And we were like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. That was my first introduction to an odd six. And then years later, um, got that um, other odd six. And really, I ended up um, messing around mostly with 180s and 165s. But because I did the majority of my um, hunting in northern Michigan at that point for deer, and I just liked the way those 165 shot a little bit better um, in, in that federal ammunition. So really, that 165 green bullet weight and an OT-6 was my go-to for a long, long time for all that eastern hunting. And then, um, and then when I came out west and hunted west, I sort of shifted more to the one eighties. So yeah, th- those those two those two have been kind of my mainstays. No, it's that's interesting, and it's interesting. You know, kind of goes back to a lot of our conversation already of how certain things influence what we what we choose and what we end up going to. Because by the numbers, like a one eighty, or yeah, and there's not a ton of one ninety hunting bullets, but like two you know, 200 grain or higher hunting bullets, like those bullets, they make more sense, man. But my, I used more than anything. I used 150 grain bullets in my 30-06. A lot of that was my, you know, when I was a kid, just freshly up here, my Uncle Tracy, like used 150 grain Swift Sirocco's, like used 150 grain bullets. That's what my rifle shoots. And his rifle does, I hand-loaded a bunch of them for him. And that rifle does shoot them very well and have killed a shit pile of moose. It's interesting, that Swift Scirocco. I have only killed a couple animals with that over the years. And uh, I think the last one was in actually a 7 Rem Mag. Um, I don't know if it was 140 or I can't remember what the bullet weight was on a mule deer. And that was years ago. Um, And that, that worked okay. But like, that's a, that's a bullet I never really had much experience with. Like, how did that, um, like terminally, what did it do there? Like they seem to do really well. I mean, just like a bonded, I mean, they're a bonded bullet. Like they, you know, most of the time you shoot them in the ribs, it goes all the way through. You don't recover the bullet. You know, I, I don't have a lot of, I don't recall a lot of, you know, recovering. He usually did most of the cutting on them. So I couldn't tell you too well, but I know he's killed a 
fucking shitload of moose. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's like his go-to. But I was used, I mean, I remember using when they had the, the first came out with the Hornady Superformance 150 grain interlocks, I think. I shot several moose with, I mean, shot my first sheep with those, shot several moose with those, caribou, bears. Um, I even like, I, my little Lee loader, I hand loaded even some of the barns, uh, 165 grain, the blue, the blue coated X bullets. You remember those? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, before they came out with the triple shocks, you know, I shot the biggest black bear I still will ever kill. I killed with those, um, but yeah, no, it's uh, yeah the one the one fifties for whatever reason will always always hold a special place in my heart for the thirty out six. But uh, you know the and and those Siracos shot really well. My uncle's rifle. I uh, I have some Remington loaded hundred sixty five grain Siracos. I think that shoot okay in my thirty out six. I've tried some of the federal a couple different federal loads in 300 wind mag and 308 with the swift Siracos and they just don't shoot for shit but i know like the bolt you know it's some that's a problem that like i don't have time to diagnose <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh the bullet you know i i have seen the bullets shoot really well and and yeah that's kind of a whole nother rabbit trail but uh yeah man well uh I probably better get get going and let you get get going too, especially if your beer fridge is downstairs and not right by your desk like mine. Oh, I'll tell. <laughs> I'm both uh, envious of that and and really glad I don't have a beer fridge next to where I work because uh, I would have to I would have to turn to it to self medicate after reading some of our uh, uh, the comments on Facebook on some of the stories we put up there. Yeah, you know it's. Uh, I don't know if it's better or worse because this is this is entirely unrelated to like the podcast, but the old we talk about the face you know, Facebook changing and throttling down like the number of people that can see our stories, which is frustrating. But um it's also like holy shit, like you remember some of the days when just the there was too too much stupid stuff to even even respond to. And not I mean not all of it's stupid, obviously, but a lot of it's pretty Pretty, it's it's been my 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 cynical attitude has been years in the making <laughs> well yeah when you have to when you have to wade into this well it's been interesting you know one of the things that you know you and i have done and we did it very consciously you know it's been oh, actually probably going on close to a year now if not more i can't remember but we made a very conscious decision to go in and kind of reclaim our uh outdoor life facebook um, comments page you know every every story that would get published it could be on the best bass lures oh best bass lures six five creedmoor you know and so we, yeah. we just have that level of intelligence and insight on every post and you know we, you know you and i kind of got sick of it and decided to go in there and, and put our fingers in the chest of some of those people and give them a little pushback and actually it's been a very interesting study in sort of social media management because our Facebook page now is a much more interesting place to visit and be because the, um, the, the really empty calorie, just shit talkers are now gone or they've changed their tune. Um, you know, and, and not that there isn't disagreement and, and so forth. That's what makes it fun. But at least now the, um, at least now it's not just this one sided, just heap of nonsense of, you know, 12 guys 
congratulating themselves on on crapping on the six five Creedmoor, you know, every time we talk about um, archery regs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Gator don't play no shit. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh man. Anyway, man. Well, yeah, we'll uh we'll probably go ahead and wrap this up, but uh you got any any parting thoughts? It's been great to I mean, I always enjoy chatting with you, but uh it's great to great to finally get you on the podcast and talk a little bit. We'll have to do it again and I mean, there's no one thing that 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 and maybe I mentioned it before, but that initially going into all this, you know, this digital stuff, this job, I didn't, I didn't think that I didn't know how I would be able to come up with enough stuff to keep me busy. But man, like with the time, with the doors open, like they have, you know, and just our workflow, like there's so many interesting topics and subjects and stuff to nerd out about on a level that before, you know, it might've been, all right, well, I'll just get this, you know, get this story ready for the next print issue and, uh, move on with my life. And, uh, I think we can, we can look at stuff on another level. And so we'll have to have, make a point of having you back on and talk about, and people can always email in and if they got, you know, ballistic type shooting, shooting questions or just hunting stories, stuff, you know, that they want to hear from you, you'd be a good, you'd be a good solid plug to, bring back on, bring back on every time. Yeah, you know, no, it's, time. it's been super fun and I'll, I'll come on anytime, man. You know, I'm a, I'm a big Tyler Friel fan. I'm a big Tundra talk fan. And, uh, he's also large. So, you know, you know, I didn't, did not mean that metaphorically, but, uh, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, you know, and we're, we are lucky. We're very fortunate to, to be able to, do the kind of nerding out and the exploration that we get to do and, and get a chance to share that with people. And, um, you know, whatever, wherever the data takes us, you know, it's nice to kind of convey that without any agenda or, um, or preconceived notions, you know, and having that freedom and that flexibility, you know, which, you know, frankly, not many people in our space have, um, you know, you know, the life of a freelancer, it's a tough life. And, you know, those guys, the good ones, you know, bust their ass and they, and they produce great work. And a lot of them are some of our best friends, but, you know, we've got the, um, the privilege of, of having staff positions where, you know, we don't have to necessarily, you know, justify each hour in terms of what it's producing you know, in terms of like revenue for a story we're getting paid for, we have a lot more runway and freedom to explore some of these topics and have um, take on projects that can span many, many months um, to assemble while we do other things. And, um, you know, that's, that's really helping, you know, from my perspective of having been with Outdoor Life for, you know, 22 years now, um, you know, it really helps us to expand the legacy of this great publication that you and I are, are, are part of shepherding and, um, and nurturing and, uh, you know, to kind of uphold those standards, uphold those traditions and, uh, and have fun while we're doing it. And it's a, it's a great time to be a gun nerd. And, uh, there's no reason for, for you and me not to make the most of it. Yep. That, that's the truth. I feel very, very lucky to be in the position I am. And it's, uh, um, I totally forgot what I was going to say, but believe me, it was going to be great. 
<laughs> and the good news is, is that tomorrow is yet another day where we have to publish more. So you can yeah. these thoughts up in a story and hit publish and it'll all be good. Yep. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, thanks for coming on, John. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Yep. No problem. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. If you enjoy Tundra Talk, I appreciate it if you leave a good review, ideally, on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. And if you got something bad to say, well, hey, I'm here, and it's the Internet. So we'll talk to you later. Thanks.